Part First, Chapter Nine of *The Well Beloved* by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part First, Chapter Nine. Familiar phenomena in the distance. By degrees, Pearson began to trace again the customary lines of his existence, and his profession occupied him much as of old. The next year or two only once brought him tidings through some residents at his former home of the movements of the Bencombs. The extended voyage of Marcia's parents had given them quite a zest for other scenes and countries, and it was said that her father, a man still in vigorous health except at brief intervals, was utilising the outlook which his cosmopolitanism afforded him by investing capital in foreign undertakings. What he had supposed turned out to be true. Marcia was with them. No necessity for joining him had arisen, and thus the separation of himself and his nearly married wife by common consent was likely to be a permanent one. It seemed as if he would scarce ever again discover the carnate dwelling-place of the haunted minion of his imagination. Having gone so near to matrimony with Marcia as to apply for a licence, he had felt for a long while morally bound to her by the incipient contract, and would not intentionally look about him in search of the vanished ideality. Thus, during the first year of Miss Bencombe's absence, when absolutely bound to keep faith with the elusive one's late incarnation, if she should return to claim him, this man of the odd fancy would sometimes tremble at the thought of what would become of his solemn intention if the phantom were suddenly to disclose herself in an unexpected quarter, and seduce him before he was aware. Once or twice he imagined that he saw her in the distance, at the end of a street, on the far sands of a shore, in a window, in a meadow at the opposite side of a railway station. But he determinedly turned on his heel and walked the other way. During the many uneventful seasons that followed Marcia's stroke of independence, for which he was not without a secret admiration at times, Jocelyn threw into plastic creations that ever-bubbling spring of emotion which, without some conduit into space, will surge upwards and ruin all but the greatest men. It was probably owing to this certainly not on account of any care or anxiety for such a result, that he was successful in his art, successful by a seemingly sudden spurt, which carried him at one bound over the hindrances of years. He prospered without effort. He was A.R.A. But recognitions of this sort, social distinctions which he had once coveted so keenly, seemed to have no utility for him now. By the accident of being a bachelor, he was floating in society without any sole anchorage or shrine that he could call his own. And, for want of a domestic centre round which honours might crystallise, they dispersed impalpably without accumulating and adding weight to his material well-being. He would have gone on working with his chisel with just as much zest if his creations had been doomed to meet no mortal eye but his own. This indifference to the popular reception of his dream-figures lent him a curious artistic aplomb that carried him through the gusts of opinion without suffering them to disturb his inherent bias. The study of beauty was his only joy for years onwards. In the streets he would observe a face, or a fraction of a face, which seemed to express to a hair's breadth in mutable flesh what he was at that moment wishing to express in durable shape. He would dodge and follow the owner like a detective in omnibus, in cab, in steamboat, through crowds, into shops, churches, theatres, public-houses, and slums, mostly, when at close quarters, 
to be disappointed for his pains. In these professional beauty-chases he sometimes cast his eye across the Thames to the wharves on the south side, and to that particular one whereat his father's tons of freestone were daily landed from the catches of the south coast. He could occasionally discern the white blocks lying there, vast cubes so persistently nibbled by his parent from his island rock in the English Channel, that it seemed as if in time it would all be nibbled away. One thing it passed him to understand. On what field of observation the poets and philosophers based their assumption that the passion of love was intensest in youth, and burnt lower as maturity advanced. It was possibly because of his utter domestic loneliness that, during the productive interval which followed the first years of Marcia's departure, when he was drifting along from five-and-twenty to eight-and-thirty, Pearson occasionally loved with an ardour, though it is true also with a self-control, unknown to him when he was green in judgment. His whimsical, isle-bred fancy had grown to be such an emotion that the well-beloved, now again visible, was always existing somewhere near him. For months he would find her on the stage of a theatre. Then she would flit away, leaving the poor, empty carcass that had lodged her to mum on as best it could without her, a sorry lay figure to his eyes, heaped with imperfections and sullied with commonplace. She would reappear, it might be, in an at first unnoticed lady, met at some fashionable evening party, exhibition, bazaar, or dinner, to flit from her in turn after a few months, and stand as a graceful shop-girl at some large drapery warehouse into which he had strayed on an unaccustomed errand. Then she would forsake this figure, and redisclose herself in the guise of some popular authoress, piano-player, or fiddleress, at whose shrine he would worship for perhaps a twelve months. Once she was a dancing-girl at the Royal Moorish Palace of Varieties, though during her whole continuance at that establishment he never once exchanged a word with her, nor did she first or last ever dream of his existence. He knew that a ten minutes' conversation in the wings with the substance would send the elusive haunter scurrying fearfully away into some other even less accessible mask figure. She was a blonde, a brunette, tall, petite, svelte, straight-featured, full, curvilinear. Only one quality remained unalterable her instability of tenure. In Bourne's phrase, nothing was permanent in her but change. "'It is odd,' he said to himself, "'that this experience of mine, or idiosyncrasy, or whatever it is, which would be sheer waste of time for other men, creates sober business for me. For all these dreams he translated into plaster, and found that by them he was hitting a public taste he had never deliberately aimed at, and mostly despised.' He was, in short, in danger of drifting away from a solid artistic reputation to a popularity which might possibly be as brief as it would be brilliant exciting. "'You'll be caught some day, my friend,' Summers would occasionally observe to him. "'I don't mean to say entangled in anything discreditable, for I admit that you are in practice as ideal as in theory. I mean, the process will be reversed. Some woman whose well-beloved flits about as yours does now will catch your eye.' and you'll stick to her like a limpet, while she follows her phantom, and leaves you to ache as you will. "'You may be right, but I think you are wrong,' said Pearson. "'As flesh she dies daily, like the Apostle's corporeal self, because when I grapple with the reality she's no longer in it, so that I cannot stick to one incarnation if I would.' "'Wait till you are older,' said Summers. 
End of part first, chapter nine.